Welcome to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And we maintain that no no truer words have ever been spoken. But again, we our our guest is a is lawyer. a lawyer, <laughs> but he is not your average everyday this lawyer. Is true. He's a lawyer that that writes loves West, the rest. That white writes he's westerns. A historian, and he writes far. westerns, and that's very important. Yes, Welcome is. to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and in the studio. Ta da! So is, I've been threatening for at least three years. It is, and I finally have made made good on my threat. <laughs> and we didn't have enough warning to change the locks, so. <laughs> yes, I am here. Uh, what else do I? I was enticed by cupcakes and uh, uh, Nola willing to come along. Yeah, as well. Yeah. Lovely lady, Nola. She's a descendant of Kit Carson. That's yes. pretty. That's pretty great. And we are going to. We are in pursuit of her uncle. Uncle. To talk about Johnny many Carson? things. Uh, <laughs> Kit Carson. Talk about his training post. His brother's training post. And their father's book on Howard Hill. Oh, okay. In the meantime, our guest today is uh, John Bessenecker. He's an attorney up in San Francisco, but moreover, he writes uh, westerns, and that's why he's here. He, he uh, more than writes westerns, he writes western history, and I mean, it is history. He has he's got the nitty gritty details. He even tell you whether there's dirt under their fingernails. John, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So is there dirt under the fingernails? <laughs> uh, more or less. Uh, some people, uh, uh, the, the main knock against my books, uh, Bosnecker has too many facts. <laughs> Bosnecker has too many names. And uh, the answer to that is it's history. It's not a novel. There yeah. you go. Well, you know, I read, I read that comment <laughs> on one person's review on one of your books, and I thought that guy couldn't be more wrong. Because that's what history is. It's mm-hmm. facts. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not myth and supposition and makeup. Well, this time we're going to. Well, you, you've got nine. Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, I'm just going to say, uh, John, if you don't mind, we're going to take a little minute. No, digress for a moment. To digress here, for uh, a friend of ours was involved working on the uh, movie up in Santa Fe, where the uh, DP, the director of photography, was accidentally shot and killed, and. I just want to kind of straighten some stuff out because I've heard some things on the radio. In fact, I heard it today on another show. Uh, a local guy who's very knowledgeable about guns, is an expert actually, but he doesn't know anything about movie sets. And he was making some uh, statements that were a little broad, I thought. And I just want to clarify my experience. I spent over 30 years as a professional motion picture stuntman. Uh, I worked mostly westerns, and I worked with a lot of guns, and I actually, uh, on a lot of the shows, would help the prop guys with the guns, loading and stuff like that, checking them in, just to, you know, being part of the crew and part of the overall milieu. And I have seen the, the motion picture industry change. When I started working back there, it was not uncommon for us to be working on a show like a series like Chaparral and take our own guns to show to work with us and bring them home, and nobody checked us. But there's, there's a, a, a thing in our culture today. We have few, more, fewer and less and less people that know guns or know anything about them. And a lot of those people are working on pictures. 
the uh, armor on this picture, uh, I feel, was more than qualified. Uh, young lady, we did an interview with her. Her dad, we did an interview with him. Tell Reed, one of the very, very best uh, armorers in the business. And I, I can guarantee you that uh, his daughter is 100% certified. He would not let her go on a job if she couldn't have done it. And that's just the facts. And I just want to clear up a couple of things, too. Uh, uh, the journey of their shooting is, if, I assume it was a handgun. That would have been a five-in-one blank, meaning five different, it would fit five different models. It would have different loads, half, quarter, uh, even smaller. Uh, as far as firing a uh, blank towards the camera, it is standard practice, and, I'm, and, it, and it would not be uh, the armorer's job, it would be camera's job, but there would be a, they would generally put up a clear plexiglass shield in front of the camera, just in case, you know, there was any, because blanks do have blowout, that means it's the powder, mm -hmm. will, will kind of pattern. Now, and this is just supposition on my part, uh, one, the gun was not given to the actor by the armor. It was given to him by the assistant director. There is a chain of command. Uh, the armorer normally would be the one nowadays to do it, but the assistant director has authority over the armorer, and that means the assistant director would say, give me the gun, I'm giving it to him, and not check it, or not, who knows what happens. My, my feeling is that possibly the barrel was either clogged or something had gotten into the barrel. I don't think uh, you know, the person that mentioned it earlier on the other show was uh, iterating uh, all the faults that could be laid on uh, the actor. Uh, he's not familiar with westerns. He's not familiar with movies, I don't believe. And I think his points were valid, but they were off score. And uh, Todd, you knew the young lady. Would you like to say anything? Well, I think it's important to, first of all, start off by saying that Thel Reed, um, who you mentioned, uh, Bunker, uh, is not just one of the most accomplished armorers and experienced armorers in the industry. He's also a member of the Golden Circle. So if anyone, who, such as the other host that you might you were mentioning, who was a firearms person, anybody in the know in firearms would know who that is. Uh, the Golden Circle was started by... Uh, um, great Jeff Cooper, and um, there are only five people on the planet ever in life that were part of the Golden Circle. Jeff Cooper was one. The other one was uh, Eldon Carl, Ray Chapman, and I forget the fourth. Thel Reed is one. To be in the he Golden Circle... He was Well, he was also... He's the most famous of all, other than Jeff Cooper. Um, but, first of all, you had to have won... The Leather Slap, which was a live ammo shoot at least twice in two different disciplines. Bell Reed did it um, in the single action, uh, 45 Long Colt. He also did it in a 45, uh, 1911 45 automatic. And this was a shoot that took place, started in the late 50s. And it was all comers. Any type of leather, uh, any type of gun, didn't matter, any type of ammo. And you fired shoulder to shoulder with your competitor, and there were two targets in front of you, and the guy who hit it first was the guy who won. Fell uh, also is a certified military range officer, a certified law enforcement range officer, 
ex-military uh, Marine. He, uh, if anybody wants to know who Thel Reed is, go on uh, YouTube and watch um, the clips of him on the Ed Sullivan Show. Um, I've known him for many years. He used to live with me. Um, he's still a very close friend. His daughter is too. Uh, there's nobody that I've ever come across, and I've been shooting for 40 years. I'm not saying I'm the most experienced. I probably know the least of all the friends I have that shoot. But I'll tell you this. Thel Reed is probably the safest firearms person I've ever been around. He's also the most fun person I've been around. But he has a very simple rule. Um, safety is number one. We can always have fun as long as we're having safety. But if we don't have safety, we can never have fun. And that's his rule. I know that he taught that to his daughter based on our interview and based on my other personal conversations with her. These things happen. We know that we lost John Eric Hexum, who most people don't know who that is, but he was going to be the next John Wayne Brad Pitt uh, guy who basically was clowning around with a three foot two seven Magnum mm-hmm. with a 501 blank in it and was goofing off and put it to the side of his head and pulled the trigger and a 501 blank left the chamber and entered his skull and he was brain dead and eventually died. Same thing with Brandon Lee. Brandon Lee, who was, uh, his agent was a very, very close friend of mine since childhood and um, the same thing happened to him except he was shot from a few few, farther distance away. Mm -hmm. He got hit just above the belly button and he died almost instantly. People say, well, it's a blank. How could it happen? Well, uh, when a projectile is moving at 1,500 feet Per second, anything can happen. And with guns, we know anything can happen. I got it does shot constantly. Sure. And other people, you know, have been wounded or shot. I cowboy shoot, and I've seen guys who were in the military or in law enforcement have an accident. It's very rare, but I've seen it. So now you take into the equation people who don't know about guns, and they look at them as props. They're not props. It's a weapon, and we know what happens. Well, this the, is an evidence of it. And the fact that, <clears throat> pardon me, the uh, the media is going uh, bonkers, uh, trying to find all kinds of information that may be detrimental uh, to what actually happened. They want to make it sensational. We don't know everything that transpired, and to make any further comment would be, I think, inappropriate. Uh, but I will say this, that... Uh, uh, I have had uh, some media contact me about uh, quotations that contained uh, were contained inside the podcast that we did, uh, the interview we did with Hannah Breed, and, uh, you know, if you're going to use them, you best not take them out of context, because if you do, that'll be the last time you ever do anything like that, and I guarantee it. And everybody, wait until ATF makes their report, because they are thorough. Very much 100% so. so. It, it would be supremely irresponsible and negligent uh, and careless to make any comments about something that we don't know anything about. To jump to conclusions. And speaking of jumping, let's Let, jump to our guest. Let's jump to John and Pearl Hart. Pearl Hart, a Canadian-born outlaw of the American Old West. Apparently, she uh, committed one of the last recorded stage robberies in the U.S. Her crime, crime gained notoriety primarily because of her gender. 
Uh, we don't know a whole lot about her except uh, that she was a bandit. And uh, she robbed uh, the stage. It was up in, uh, what, Glo- between Globe and Mammoth. Mammoth. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, if you read Wildcat, uh, the untold story of Pearl Hart, the Wild West's most notorious woman bandit by John Bosenecker, you'll know probably more about her than she knew about her. Well, then, John, tell us about Pearl. Well, she was a fascinating character. I've actually been writing about the Old West since I was in high school and have been aware of her for, oh, probably 50 years, I guess, at least since the late 1960s. And uh, over the years, I kind of gradually accumulated uh, information on her and finally decided to do a book uh, because most of my... Uh, most of what's been written about her is uh, fictitious or mythical. And yes, she was, uh, in her time, uh, she was by far the most famous woman outlaw of the Old West. She was featured in Cosmopolitan magazine. She broke out of jail several times. She uh, uh, was, you know, robbed a stagecoach in Arizona Territory, as you mentioned. And so her story is really kind of a remarkable one, and it's never been told before. Uh, you know, I have a question for you, or kind of, a, it's a, we're, I'm, we're, I'm noted for our, my weird questions. <laughs> but you, you mentioned that you uh, have been writing for quite a long time, and I noticed that your first article was done when you were 15 for True Treasure magazine, but uh, I think there's a little controversy there, because one version I... I have about, I've read about it, was that it was about some cowboys burying gold in New Mexico, and the other one was it was about a, uh, a holdup in Nevada. So which one of these trails am I riding down? <laughs> well, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, that, uh, you've done your research. It was actually about a stage robbery and buried treasure in Nevada, and at the time, I was 15. That's great. And today, of course, I would never publish that because it <laughs> turned out uh, that it was a typical treasure tale. Most of them are absolute nonsense. Uh, the stage robbery uh, later, uh, as you know, as an adult, I researched the correct story, and the stage robbery never happened. <laughs> there was never any uh, treasure buried. Uh, but it was my first uh, effort as a 15-year-old, so I beg forgiveness for the boo-boos I made back then. You're acquitted. Don't worry, John. Thank uh, you. You don't need Thank to beg you. for forgiveness. You just need to get over here with some plenty of liquor. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, the forgiveness will literally uh, exit it right out the, the window, Actually, like to, most to of get my off common the topic, sense. Though, the uh, Alec Baldwin thing, I was just going to mention, it was very, very disturbing and, you know, my heart goes out to everybody involved. But uh, I was a police officer as a young man yes. for eight years, and we were always trained, and the training's no different today, you know, that a gun is always loaded. You know, you, you never assume that a gun is unloaded. And you, even if you, as a police officer, uh, in most of the arrests that I made, in which I did need to have the gun out, I kept the barrel pointed at the ground uh, simply for that safety reason and that's what we were trained to do and officers today i believe are trained the same way and i do agree that many people today uh, we have a much lower 
in uh, uh, number of people that have served in the military. Unlike in the 1950s and 60s, the great number of American males or military veterans, very familiar with firearms, and that's become less and less the case today. And it is uh, it is a concern that uh, people are buying guns but don't have the um, the uh, knowledge to keep them safe. That's very true, uh, John. In fact, I've had many friends since you know uh, the election and then with COVID knowing that I was into firearms and would come to me who have never been around firearms, these people, and saying, you know, I'm thinking about buying a gun for home defense. Uh, And I look at them and I go, well, let me ask you a few questions. And I get about, you know, 20 seconds into my little bit of my speech. And, you know, oh, come on. And what do you, we don't need to need, we don't need to know all that. That's I'm just going to go buy an automatic pistol. And I'm like, well, um, you know, there's some reason. Oh, come on. You're so nervous. What are you so nervous about? And I'm like, well, uh, first of all, I don't want to be your neighbor. Um, and or have you misfire and go through the wall, which you can. But yes. would you also agree, John, then, that uh, every every gun is always loaded just as every knife is always loaded? That's what I was talking Exactly. I mean, you just have to use a great deal of care and, you know, also the, you know, the, there's a famous gun writer just within the last couple of years. His name is Escaping Me, but he wrote a fantastic story about home defense. And he cited a case where a mother shot and killed her college daughter who had come home for a surprise visit. And uh, the mother thought she was breaking into the home and the uh, the. Uh, the uh, uh, author of the article pointed out that it was probably a manslaughter, not a justifiable shooting, because she didn't have the you know basis for using deadly force. Right. So people, you know, on the one hand, they clearly want to be safe, but on the other hand, it takes a lot of training and responsibility to be a responsible gun owner. I find when I carry my firearm, I'm much nicer person. Oh yeah. <laughs> because I don't want to. I don't want to be set off. Well, you know, I was, I was taught, you know, from from my daddy's knee that a gun is a tool it first, is. then it's a weapon. It is. And that a knife is a tool, and unless you use it against a person, yep. carrying a knife is not carrying a weapon. That's it. All right. Hey, we got to do our first commercial break wow. here. Our guest is uh, John Bessenecker. We're talking about uh, Pearl Hart, the... Uh, female notorious outlaw of the Old West. And uh, he's got a book out about her called uh, Wildcat. We'll be back with much more right after these messages. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were built. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities 
activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. We never should have taken that shortcut. Look where it's led us straight into a trap. We should have turned back. We should have turned back. I wanted to. I wanted to. Aye, quiet. There's a way out of every place. This is the Voices of the West. We're back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and Todd Roberts. Is it too late to turn back? I want to turn back. Let's turn back. Take take a stab at the uh, musical artist. It's not Bob Wills. Nope. Uh, Boy, Chill Wills. Chill Wills. Chill Wills. <laughs> Our guest, John Bessenegger. Chill, yeah. Okay. And we're talking about Pearl Hart, among other things here. Pearl Hart, a Canadian lady, came to uh, our territory. Uh, what? How old was she when she came here, John? Well, she was probably in her early 20s. As far as we can tell, she first came to Arizona Territory in 1894, and she was born in the north woods of Ontario, Canada, in 1871. And she had many, many adventures as a young woman, uh, like many. And I can go into her background a bit if you you want to hear about that. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so what's interesting about Pearl Hart and what's really significant about her is that she was so different than most women in that era. Women's roles in the 19th century were domestic. Uh, Young women uh, helped out on the farm. They did farm work and cooking and cleaning and that kind of thing. And uh, they... Uh, there were very few opportunities uh, for women, you know, to maybe being a school teacher, a bookkeeper, or something like that. And for poor women, which would be Pearl Hart's family, there were nine children. Her father was a drunk, a ruffian, a rapist. He probably uh, sexually abused his daughters, given 
that most of the girls ended up as prostitutes at one time or another in their early years. And prostitution was something that was, uh, you know, there, there was no social safety net. So young women without the proper education, without job skills, especially if they were fleeing from an abusive family or abusive relationship, uh, often had no choice but to uh, work as a prostitute. And that's what happened to Pearl and her sisters. Also, you know, you made my point out, too, the fact that because she had uh, numerous run-ins with the law as a young woman, that made it even harder for her to try to fit into a more uh, Victorian society. That's exactly true. And as a young girl in her teens, she she and her younger sister, Katie, ran away from home a number of times. They dressed like boys to avoid unwanted sexual advances. They jumped on freight trains. Um, at one point, they ended up in Minnesota. Another point, they ended up in Chicago. They were locked up in a reformatory in Chicago and they escaped. They were just teenagers, about 15, 16 years old, and they took their bed sheets and made a rope and climbed <laughs> out of the airing women's institute. It's like in the movies. Which, <laughs> exactly, right out of the movies. And so many of her adventures, there's actually a wood engraving in my book showing her and her yeah. sister Katie dressed up like a couple of street urchins uh, wearing boys' clothes. And, and so later, you know, she... The short version is she has all these run-ins with the law, in and out of prostitution. She finally marries this guy who's actually family, was from San Francisco, and uh, he was an itinerant piano player. And, uh, but he was a morphine addict and, and an alcoholic and uh, abused her. They had a couple of kids, and she finally left the kids with her mother and uh, fled to Arizona Territory in 1893 or 1894 uh, to escape her husband. And she became a prostitute in Phoenix in what was called Block 41, which was the red light district of Phoenix. Hmm. You know, it was one of the interesting things about, you mentioned her sister Kathy, and I'll, I have to confess to you, John, that I like Kathy. She was... She's my favorite. I like her much better than Pearl. She ha And I think she had a, a richer, more colorful life than Pearl. All of the things that she did, and I mean, just as, just as across the law as Pearl was, but just, I mean, it was, it was like the difference between calico and silk. Yeah, and that's pretty true. And I think the, uh, the sister Katie, she uh, was... Uh, Pearl or Lily, her real name, Pearl Hart's real name was Lily Davy, and she took the name Pearl Hart from a notorious madam in Buffalo, New York, where both sisters had been working in a brothel in about 1890 before they left and went west. And yes, Katie uh, was an actress. Uh, the sisters were all very bright. They're all very attractive. Uh, and they lacked, they, they had a grade school education, maybe up to sixth or eighth grade at the most. But yes, Katie Davey, uh, she um, produced a play called The Arizona Woman Bandit based on her sister's exploits. Uh, she was a parachute diver in Texas where she'd go up in a hot yeah. air balloon and 
parachute down in Austin uh, before crowds of thousands of people. Almost drowned. She broke her husband out of jail twice, once in Texas, <laughs> once in Oklahoma. Uh, she ended up uh, as a screenwriter, an aspiring uh, uh, screenwriter and acting coach in Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s. So and she wrote just, radio uh, plays as well. Exactly. She yeah. wrote radio plays. She wrote a novel. Uh, and so, you know, it just kind of... Uh, she did uh, the science the fiction century novel. What was pretty, the name of that? Something beyond the clouds. Oh, go ahead. Now, the science fiction novel that she wrote? You know, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but it was a science fiction novel. Beyond the clouds or something, yeah. Yes, and uh, was published in the early 1940s when she was much older. But yes, uh, I say in the book that if she'd written a factual biography about her actual life, it would have been a bestseller. It would have, yes. But but given their... their, their history, especially the history of prostitution, the women in the family, all all of them married and led respectable lives in later years, so they clearly wanted to cover up that aspect. And I do point out, especially in Arizona history, uh, two of the best examples, you know, of women that were prostitutes as young women and then later uh, had respectable middle-class lives were the wives of Wyatt and Virgil Earp. Right. Uh, Allie Earp was a prostitute in Council Bluffs, Iowa, when Virgil first met her, and then she gave up that lifestyle. And both uh, Josephine Earp uh, was a prostitute in Arizona Territory before she met Wyatt Earp. And both uh, uh, the Earp brothers fully were fully aware of the backgrounds of their wives. Well, and as we all know themselves. today, you know, Wyatt Earp was a pimp in Peoria, Illinois, in mm-hmm. the early 1870s <laughs> before he came out to Arizona Territory. So uh, it wasn't like he could point a finger and say that I am a model of uh, a meritocracy and a model of morality because, you know, uh, he wasn't. But the mores of the day while they were tended to be Victorian, I'm, I'm guessing, and where am I trying to go with this? I'm, I sound like Biden. Where, where am I? Um, uh, well, you know, because he pointed it out in the book that prostitution in the East was looked upon much different than it was in the West. Yeah, as a job. Well, it was a job. It was a way of surviving. Right. An awful lot of women that I mean, got trapped. It, out these here. were not necessarily bad, bad and, girls. And a lot of these gals ended up marrying ranchers or sure. businessmen, yeah. became business women themselves. Yeah. yeah. So, well, uh, I've made this point before, and I argue it to this day. You know, what what settled the West? The the iron horse, the railroad, or was it the shotgun, the most versatile weapon that was out there, or uh, what was it? I always argue that it was the white woman. Uh, in general, because <laughs> when the white woman came about to the West, she brought things, uh, sensibilities, and and, and 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 her view of how things should be. First thing was a church. The second thing, second thing was a community center, or some type of town hall, and the third thing was a school. Mm-hmm. And um, people that were involved in, shall I say, uh, mixed relationships. Uh, women that were of Indian, Mexican, or black, or color, were, and a white man were not allowed. Was not you, you had to move further west now. You had to move further mm-hmm. into the prairie. Um, and this is this type of civilization eventually made it all the way to the coast. And 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 you have 
that type of view uh, until that point prostitution was not looked upon in the way that it was it was the white women who brought those type of values that settled it and you know you can argue for better for worse I, I think we're probably better off than we were in those terms mm -hmm. but at the same time we lost some things that unfortunately we shouldn't have lost well, you know this is this is an interesting point there if you look at the b western the part the, the part of the woman in the b western was always the calming always the thing that would straighten why the guy would straighten things out the right. gel the that hold everything together right yeah. well and and as the how many times have you and i laughed bunker and harry you know that there's only one two things that a cowboy uh, fears more than anything else is being left to foot without a horse and the second one much more so is a good woman or being because, left alone with a good woman yeah well uh, you're no longer your, your cowboy your days are over or helpless you know Marty Walsh is the Ma well yeah. yeah Sunfish Perkins you know yeah. uh, you know he, he becomes, becomes a, a clerk keeper. yeah he becomes a he's he's one heck of a uh, broom sweeping clerk yeah all right, we're going to do our next commercial break. Our guest, John Bessenecker. The book is Wildcat. It's a story about Pearl Hart, the notorious female outlaw. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts with you. We'll be back after these messages. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Polash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Polash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, first. Contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 3 304-8300. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 skeet fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. You've got some cattle you want rustled, but don't have enough henchmen of your own to do the job. A little lady up the road apiece won't strike a deal with you about water rights. You out there! Come one step near and old Bess here will spit right in your eye. So you need to strike your own deal, but you need the right henchman to do the job. The stage is hauling a Wells Fargo box loaded with gold. You've got the perfect spot to liberate that gold, but blank henchmen to pull off the job. 
What to do? You better start packing a handgun. Call Red a Hench. We're a bad guy rental agency. We provide you with enough scruffy henchmen to tackle any job with specific directions. Just listen to what Red a Hench users have to say. Well, you know, when I joined Red a Hench, I was trained by Bud Osborne, Charlie King, and some of the best head henches there ever was. And I'm going to guarantee you that you cannot hench without the proper henches around you. And that's just a gentle hench. When you need sheer numbers of henchmen, call us. We specialize in stage holdups, water right disputes, squatter troubles, cattle rustling, and much more. Our rent henchmen may not be able to think their way out of a paper bag, but they sure can follow directions, and they won't sing to the law about you if they get caught. See our ad in the Saturday Evening Post or Harper's Weekly. Hey, not only that, when you're in the Long Branch and you want to go next door to Doc's to get that bullet out of your shoulder, get a rent a to sit there on your place and keep your whiskey warm while you're gone. Red a hench when you need bad guys to do bad guy stuff so you can keep your hands clean. You let me do the work. Oh, and something else. You know, women down there can vote. Vote? Yeah. Women vote? Yeah. Oh, that, it's times like these. It just makes me give thanks that I don't know how to read. This is the Voices of the West. to be Festus Hagen. (laughs) We don't want no girly boats. Welcome back to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts, our guest John Bessenecker, and the book is called Wild Cat. It's the story of uh, female bandit Pearl Hart. And we're going to go with who wants to talk about John for a little bit. All right, go for it, Bunker. Seeing here that you're quite a, quite prolific in doing uh, articles. I know I've read several in True West. Uh, you're a Spur, uh, Spur Award finalist. You won the Best Book Award from Westerners International, which is pretty impressive. You appear frequently on PBS, History Channel, A&E, and other media as a historical commentator. And I just want to point out that, you know, you've got nine books here, and I've read excerpts from all nine of them, checking up on you. And... <laughs> You know, you are one humdinger of a historian. Well, thank you very much. I'm just something that I've been interested in since I was a little kid and would watch all the Westerns on TV back in the early 60s and uh, just got interested in it and eventually wanted to know what the real West was like. And so that's been my passion ever since. Well, you know, you, you I, I guess I'm assuming just looking at the thing that you started out with a real interest in California and the and the history of, the, of law and order in California, and several of your books are around that. And one of the books, and this is a, a favorite guy of mine, Bandito, The Life and Times of Traversio Vasquez, which that was the book that was the Spur finalist, and can you fill in our readers on our, our readers, our listeners on a little bit of uh, Vasquez? Because this guy, this guy was phenomenal, and he was like well documented of the period. Yes, he's uh, uh, of the most documented. The, the two most famous Latino outlaws in American history are Joaquin Murrieta, who is um, he was killed by the California Rangers in 1853. 
And so about 98% of what's been written about Joaquin Murrieta is complete hogwash. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's just very, very difficult. People keep asking me to do a book about him, but it would... I've always said it would take a governmental agency to sift through all the legends to try to pull the fact down. But Tiburcio, yes, he was a very real person. His career was later. He began in the mid-1850s, and he was finally captured and tried and legally hanged for a triple murder and robbery that happened in Central California, and he was hanged in San Jose, California in 1875. So in Tiburcio's case, it's actually a historical narrative, and I was able to find, you know, court records, newspaper accounts, and reminiscences, and put the story together that way. Um, and that book, my book about him is called Bandito, and it's a 500-page book, the most detailed uh, book written about a California outlaw, and uh, uh, definitely uh, different than Pearl Hart in the sense that uh, uh, Tiburcio Vasquez was uh, definitely, you know, subject to racial discrimination in that era, but the, the short version is that one of his brothers became a justice of the peace in Los Angeles County. Another brother became the head of the school board in Carmel Valley and a prominent uh, rancher in Carmel Valley, California, very close to Carmel. And so it's kind of, and his sisters were both very respectable. So, you know, it's kind of hard. How did they all succeed? And he became one of the West's most notorious outlaws. So that's the problem. That So with him, with his story, there's a lot of different angles to it, just as there are with Pearl Hart. So well, you, know, you, see, you see in the, you know, and it shows in your research, but the misinformation that the media, especially then, was so prolific in, and which is being reflected today, but you know all of these all of these folks. You know the stories you hear about Pearl Hart, the Herbs, uh, Marietta Vasquez. They all they all have so much smoke and so little substance that it's only when somebody like you comes along and says, you know, I'm I'm going to tell the story right, come hell or high water. Now I wanted I want to point out something too, which I thought was real neat. I in in looking up you and checking on you, I found out something about the cowboys from the Earp Vendetta. And if you remember in the movie Tombstone, the cowboys wore the red sash, which has been highly disputed that that didn't sashes were worn, but they weren't worn as an insignia. But I come across uh, a secret insignia that. For the Cowboys, and maybe you can tell me whether uh, I'm on the right trail or not. That they wore a snakeskin hat band, either real or silver, as a way of identifying them, themselves. Is there any uh, truth to that story? Well, yeah, there is, because uh, I found an early account when the Cowboys were just getting started. Uh, the story actually began in 1875 in New Mexico Territory under John Kinney. And then his gang, when it was finally broken up, they fled uh, New Mexico. They fled the Lincoln County War after Billy the Kid was killed and came to Arizona Territory. uh, And before Billy the Kid was killed, actually, many of them fled. 
And so in those early years, in the 1870s, there was one or two newspaper accounts talking about the cowboys wearing these either, as you say, snakeskin hat bands or silver hat bands in the form of a snake. And then later, uh, there's a newspaper account of one of the cowboys uh, having such a hat band in Tombstone. So it does seem to be uh, authentic because these are contemporary accounts from that time period. Isn't it much more fun doing this kind of research and writing about Westerns than than, uh, doing lawyering? (laughs) Uh, considering the fact that yesterday i spent uh, probably 11 hours uh dealing with legal problems uh for my clients yes uh, i'd much rather write about gunfights in the old west yeah better place to put the brain right (laughs) yes okay i have another question for you i come across in here you referenced uh a group of people and i thought it was such a neat uh reference you mentioned the Sydney Ducks, and I thought that was, you know, and you explained it, but I thought that was just so cool. Could you, uh, for our listeners, uh, kind of tell us about the Sydney Ducks? Yeah, so um, Australia uh, was the penal colony, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, there's that great song by, I think it's by Men at Work, uh, down under, you know, and, and it's about uh, the men down under, they plunder. And where that comes from is the fact that uh, in England, uh, criminals and even people who couldn't pay their debts were sent to the penal colony in Australia. And so uh, when the gold rush took place, California gold rush, uh, news got fairly quickly to, by 1849, news of the gold rush had already arrived in Australia. And many Australians joined the gold rush and because they came from Sydney and they were what we would call today jailbirds or ducks. A duck was another term for a jailbird. Uh, they were known as the Sydney ducks. And so many of the early outlaws of the California gold rush were Sydney ducks or Australian outlaws. Hmm. And some of them, then later, when gold was discovered in Australia, many of these Australian miners who'd acquired, the ones who were, you know, hardworking and and reputable, uh, they had acquired all this mining skill. They then got on ships and went back to Australia and became leaders in the Australian gold rush in the 1850s. Well, can you tell us a little bit about Anastasio Garcia? He's another favorite of mine. Yeah, so Anastasio Garcia was sort of the mentor of Tiburcio Vasquez in Monterey, California. And anybody, you know, if you want to go for a wonderful romantic weekend in California, you have to go to Monterey and Carmel. And uh, But when I go to Carmel and Monterey, I see all the places. I see the tree where guys were lynched <laughs> in the Roach-Belcher feud. I see the adobes where these bloody gun battles happened, and they're still standing. So there's this incredible history in Monterey and Carmel. And honestly, I don't think the local um, boosters or chamber of commerce really... Uh, wants you to know about that mm-hmm. because it, you know, people. <laughs> when, you, when you think of a violent community, you think of Tombstone or Dodge City. Uh, Monterey in the 1850s and 60s was much more violent than either Mon- uh, either Dodge City or Tombstone, and so that's kind of a dichotomy that you see there. So Anastasio Garcia 
got mixed up in the Roach-Belcher feud, a very bloody feud over this gorgeous California woman who'd married a wealthy rancher, and then he... He, it's a long story, but he, he, his horse drowned when he was coming back from the mining country with his saddlebags loaded with gold. He's trying to swim across his horse across the Salinas River, and he drowns. And the result is this massive feud for this gorgeous woman and her, uh, and her fortune. And Anastasio Garcia takes the side in the feud. Uh, he's a notorious outlaw. He and Vasquez, at one point, a posse try to capture them. They kill the undersheriff of Monterey County and two other volunteer posse men in one of the worst you know, law enforcement disasters in California. Today, we talk about the New Hall incident and the killing of four highway patrolmen in Southern California and the murder of four uh uh, police officers in Oakland in 2009, The Onion Field, where Joseph Wamba wrote the best-selling novel about the murder of Los Angeles police officers. And uh, they're all, you know, were predated by Anastasio Garcia killing three lawmen in this gunfight. And eventually he was captured and lynched <laughs> in Monterey in 1855. And Tiburcio Vasquez was his protege and Vasquez should have paid attention, and he didn't. And 20 years later, he met the same fate at the hmm. end of a rope. All right, we got to do our final commercial break here. Hang on the line. John Bessenecker, our guest. The book is, is uh, Wildcat. It's about Pearl Hart. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We'll be right back. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were built. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777 1911. Hello, I'm 
Mr. Ed. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses. So they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldier's Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. Coming to you from the great southwestern United States. You're darn tootin'. Yes, sir, Bob. This is the Voices of the West. Paladin, Paladin, where do you roam? Paladin, Paladin, far, far from home. Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts. And Johnny Western. You know, uh, what a voice, man. Chester, before he was Chester, yeah. Ken Curtis, he did He did several paladins. No, not Chester. You're talking uh, Ken, oh, yeah. Curtis. Ken Curtis. Yeah, but anyhow, anyhow, he did several of the gun, yeah. of the paladins. Yeah. And, but he called him Mr. Paladine. Mr. Paladine? <laughs> I know, I remember those, yeah. But, man, what a... What a voice. Johnny Western. Anywho, uh, John Bessenecker is our guest, and uh, the book is uh, Wildcat. It's about Pearl Hart. And Todd Roberts, you've got a question. So, John, in no way am I trying to be contrary. I'm just trying yes, to get, uh, well, <laughs> if you give enough liquor into me, I become overly contrary. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's two questions I have for you, and I think one is is a direct, uh, directly connected to the other. You know, there was a film years ago called um, The Ballad of Little Joe with Susie Amos and Bo Hopkins, who's a friend of the show, and we had him on the show. And it's the story of a woman who basically is um, is raped by some no-goodniks uh, on the trail. And um, who, you know, she turns to, instead of a life of prostitution or outlaw, she becomes... Uh, she she gets rid of her female her female characteristics and dresses like a man, acts like a man, becomes a man. Her name's Josephine, but she goes by Joe. At the end of the film, Bo Hopkins, who's her fellow neighbor rancher, finds out she's a man and he's very angry and so on. There were a lot of critics that came out and said, "Oh, that's impossible. No no frontiersman would ever be duped by a woman in a in a cowboy hat and a shirt." I think your book lends tremendous credence to the story of that movie and uh, number one is my first point that I want to and it is based on a real character um, but 
in other words, Pearl Hart and Little Joe are not singular instances. This happened. Um, I'd like you to talk about that. And the other question is, you call her the Bandit Queen, and you know, for many people out there in the in our Western world, on the fringe or in the center of it, think of Bell Star as the Bandit Queen. So I'd like you to talk about both those points. Yeah, so uh, Bell Star is today known as the Bandit Queen of Oklahoma, and she really had a fascinating career. Uh, but she was primarily a consort of outlaws. She never robbed anybody. She was arrested for horse theft once or twice. So the difference was, and, and she also didn't dress in men's clothing. Uh, so with Pearl, uh, she did, she enjoyed dressing in men's clothing. I mean, uh, she thought it was more comfortable. She complained to Bob Paul, the famous California lawman who became undersheriff in uh, Pima County in Tucson. And he was running the jail, and she complained to him, and he gave her back and let her wear the women's clothing. So when she finally broke out of the Pima County Jail and fled to New Mexico Territory, she was wearing women's or wearing men's clothing uh, because Bob Paul just felt sorry for her. And keep in mind, Bob Paul was a close friend of the Earp brothers and was a very dangerous gunfighter. He'd been a lawman since 1853. Very, very experienced, but he also took pity on Pearl. I mean, she had a great personality like her sister Katie did, and so I think that men were very uh, unlikely, for example, to convict women. In this particular case, it was kind of a surprise in many ways that she was convicted of stage robbery. And what happened was the first jury actually hung, and then the judge gave them a tongue lashing, and then they came around but are they uh, and found a verdict of uh, guilty. So women were, because of the uh, huge um, disparity between men and women, women were just in the minority. Men revered women. They were a scarcity. We were talking about that before, and that's why prostitutes in the West were treated much better than prostitutes in the East, and men were much more likely to marry them because there were so few women around. But that would be the principal difference. Bell Starr was not a prostitute, although she did have some various escapades with, uh, she claimed to have been a lover of Cole Younger. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. I've heard it's not true, but I'm no expert. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's coming up next for you, John? Yes. Down the uh, my next book is it's a biography of Black Bart, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, America's greatest stage robber. Mm-hmm. He robbed 29 stagecoaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a gentleman bandit. Uh, had an incredible career. Is a very uh, 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 courageous Civil War veteran who uh, his life kind of went sideways mm-hmm. after he came west to make a new start and very fascinating story kind of uh, have parallels with Pearl Hart Mm -hmm. uh, because both came west to start a new life let us know when that one's available we'll have you back on the show John Bessenegger and he was also a poet Yes. Uh, uh, the one and only Black Bart. Get the book. It's and called, a dandy. It's called Wildcat about Pearl Hart by John Bessenegger. Thank, John, thank you much for joining us this afternoon. Appreciate it very much. So thank, thank you so, so much, much John, right. and keep, keep the pencil running. That's girl. it. It's real good. More fun than lawyer. I will. Thank you very much. <laughs> all right, fellas. Thank you. All right. That's all the time we've got for today. Hey, thank you, Mr. Roberts, for being in studio with us. Thank you, gentlemen, you for having so, me. So eloquent. 
Well, I, I'm on my best behavior because I brought Nola Carson. That's right. Who's a direct descendant she's been, of Kit Carson. She has been watching him and, like a hawk. Next yeah, time well, we get together, it's a Movie Saturday, and we're going to be doing Odors and Oscars. Odors and Oscars. Here on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Oh, that's 78, 79, and a Bosonager 80s. All right, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West.